The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I know, say, people think this is really kind of counterproductive to say we need to invest now in Ukraine's long-term resilience. Even as the war is going on, even as all this is happening, you know, we, security and resilience go hand in hand. Uh, because if we don't, and you know, the war ends, and hopefully Ukraine is the winner of that war and regains its territory, but there, if we haven't invested in ensuring that we have a vibrant Ukrainian civil society, that we have Ukrainian judiciary that's independent, Ukrainian courts are independent, all those elements that contribute to a vibrant democratic society, then I, I don't know where the country will go. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 24th, 2023. Yes, February 24th, that's the first anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And I thought to myself, who do I want to have a conversation with about the first year of the full-scale invasion and what comes next? And I thought, I know exactly who I want to talk to, Alina Polyakova, president of the Center for European Policy Analysis. She joined me in the virtual jungle studio to do a kind of tour of the entire region. What's been going on in Ukraine the past year? What's been going on in Russia the past year? How about Eastern Europe? How about Western Europe? And of course, there's us, the United States. We talked about it all. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 24th. Alina Polyakova on the first year of the Russia-Ukraine war. So I want to start with the question of how this year has differed from your expectations of it. A year ago, we all you know, woke up or found out in the middle of the night that the full-scale invasion had started, and we all had certain expectations about what was going to happen. I know mine have been thrown in the gutter and stomped on, and I am just curious how the year uh, that has just passed compared with what you expected of it. Well, you know, going back to where we were a year ago, I was just thinking about this because I was at the Munich Security Conference just now and last year. And of course, last year, that conference took place just a few days before the full-scale invasion. And the conversation then was, one, 
no European believed that Putin would do it, despite U.S. and also U.K. warnings. Um, so it was a very strange environment then. And then when it did happen, uh, I think the entire intelligence community, including Russia's own intelligence, got it wrong, right? Because we all thought this was going to be a three-day war and that the Russian military was so sophisticated and so large that Ukraine didn't stand a chance. And we really underestimated, I think, Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, in a pretty significant way even as we overestimated Russian capabilities. And of course, none of those things came to pass. But I think early on in the war, um, seeing the attack on Kiev, which was the original strategy the Russians had, no, I, I was quite terrified and quite convinced that they were basically going to carpet bomb Ukraine, including the capital, because that's what they had done um, in Aleppo most recently, very brutally. And of course, that didn't happen. And in Grozny. And of course, that was that's the origin of all of this, right? That that is the origin. It's exactly right. Uh, so we've seen the Russians do this before, and that's what I was afraid was going to happen in Ukraine. And thankfully, that didn't happen. And the Ukrainians fought back in amazing ways. The Russians have made huge mistakes, and we have also seen how. It's just they've just done stupid things throughout the year, frankly, but also their military is just not what we thought it was. But still, you know, we're now a year into this. And my concern now, of course, is that we've kind of settled into a pattern where now there's, you know, a war over there in Ukraine and it's just part of our daily news cycle, but it's no longer a shock to people like it was at the beginning. And, and I do think that is a problem. It's a real problem. So talk to me about this year's Munich Security Conference. We all read the news stories about who said what, but what were your impressions of it uh, this year as opposed to last? Well, again, last year, of course, will he or won't he, meaning will Putin invade, won't he invade, was really the dominant conversation. Um, it was also the first time that Zelensky, if, again, as we recall, Zelensky was also underplaying the threat because ostensibly they didn't, he didn't want to incite panic in the population and have everybody run and all of that. Uh, but Zelensky was a Munich in person last year. And that was the first time, I think, that he really sounded like a wartime president and he rang the alarm bells that this was happening for the first time. This year, he he joined via video link, not in person for obvious reasons. But, you know, I think what surprised me in Munich is that after the invasion on February 24th last year, it was such a strategic shock to the alliance that it really jolted I think global leaders, um, especially Europeans, into into action. I think the most profound example of this was uh, Chancellor Schultz's Zeitenwende speech, the, this watershed moment that took just three three days after the took place three days after the invasion. Fast forward to this year, you know, if you look at what world leaders were saying, the ambition seems to have been lowered. You know, and I think the reason for that is be- is that we all thought Ukraine was going to fall. 
in three days. And we're going to have Russia on NATO's border. But because Ukraine has taken the brunt of the pain, it's still protecting Europe. But now that seems like, okay, so we are, the threat isn't as present as we thought it was going to be. And I think that's leading to a little bit of hedging now. And I think somewhat diminished ambitions for what we as the allies of the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian government are trying to achieve. So, you know, for example, there's been obvious coordination on the talking point between the United States and European countries that we will be with Ukraine for as long as it takes. President Biden said this, Schultz said this, Macron said this, others have said this. You know, what I was surprised about, about was what that sounded like to Ukrainians. I talked to all the Ukrainians that I could talk, talk to when I was in Munich this year. And what that sounds like to them is, okay, as long as it takes for what? As long as it takes to do what? Right? To them, this sounds like, well, of course, they're very happy that we have, you know, that Ukraine has support from the West, because obviously without that, be a very, very different situation now. And it has been very significant. I don't want to diminish how significant Western aid has been and military equipment have been. But I think the unfortunate reality is that if this is all we can do, it's not enough. Because the Ukrainians need more to be able to win. But we didn't hear from world leaders, from heads of state, we didn't hear them speak with one voice that our goal is to win. Of course, we hear Poland saying that. We hear the Baltic states saying that. But we don't hear that kind of consensus across the alliance. And I think that's sending the message to Ukrainians that you know, the U.S. especially, but also others anticipate that we're going to be in this thing for years. And what one Ukrainian MP said to me was, well, look, we can't do this for years because that might mean we might actually lose because Ukraine is getting destroyed economically, culturally, obviously militarily. And years of this, that's going to be very hard to recover from. So I think this lack of commitment to Ukraine's victory is what I took away from the conference. And to be clear, what's interesting is that Congressional leaders, you know, Pelosi's there, we had the large, you know, McConnell's there, everyone was there. It was the largest U.S. congressional delegation to Munich ever, which is, says something. They all spoke with one voice. I was very surprised. I was surprised by how direct and clear you know, Nancy Pelosi said it publicly, McConnell said it publicly, Congressman McCall, who's uh, the, the chair of House Foreign Affairs Committee, they all spoke with one voice. But the alliance isn't speaking in one voice. And that was really, I think, my takeaway. Yeah, so that's really interesting because I, I think if you asked the administration what we're in it as long as it takes means they would say that it's, it shows our degree of commitment, not it shows our degree of, you know, our lack of commitment or a lack of a vision of winning it's designed to, to send a message to the Russians that you can't wait till we get bored. Is this an issue of Ukrainians and the West not really speaking the same language and therefore not quite communicating well, which of course happened at the beginning of the war as well? 
or is this an issue of we are actually communicating the wrong thing? Well, I think we're not communicating an end goal. We're communicating an operational policy, but we're not communicating a strategic vision. And that seems to be part of the idea. And, you know, I think in some private conversations with U.S. government officials, they will admit that. You know, they, they will admit that we don't have a policy focused on winning on Ukraine's terms. So what would a policy focused on winning look like? Well, I think the answer to that is actually really easy, because if you say we're in it as long as it takes to win, right, you add that very important end to that sentence. Well, then you do what you do to win. And that is you supply the Ukrainians with everything they need, throw everything you can possibly throw in and give them what they need to take back their territory to what the Ukrainians have asked, which is an immediate return to prior February 24th so-called borders. I mean, there weren't borders, but the the status quo that existed at the time, and then a process for returning Crimea, uh, returning the so-called LNR and DNR territories back to Ukraine. You know, but we're not committed to that because we still have debates on, should we send the Ukrainians patriots? We finally did, but first we said that was escalatory, and we said we wouldn't, but then we did. Should we send the Ukrainians tanks? We said that was a no, escalatory, then we did. You know, I, I sometimes get frustrated because, like, why do we waste all that time? You know? So how much of that is because we are wasting time, and how much of that is because the administration doesn't want to proceed unless it can hold the alliance together. And so you're dealing in German time and in French time. Obviously, that's a big part of that because a lot of the debates around these systems, whether we provide or we don't provide, um, have revealed disagreements among allies. I mean, you really saw that with the tanks, right? Yes. Where what the Ukrainians really wanted was the leopards, which are German, the Leopards, the Germans won't go forward with the Leopards unless we're in with the M1 Abrams, uh, which is presumably not the right tank for the situation. But we agree to go uh, to let some M1A1 Abrams go because it'll eventually it will, if we, if we commit to that some months from now, it will eventually, it'll free up now Leopards. Right. But that raises the question to me of whether the Biden administration is actually, you know, being held back here by the need to keep the NATO group together or whether they are using it as a as cover for their own timidity. I think it's honestly a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both because, you know, if the U.S. leads, that's the big one, of the big lessons learned that we already knew beforehand, if the U.S. leads Europe will eventually follow. Do we want to supply all the military assistance on our own? No, of course we want the allies to support and be part of their burden sharing. However, it's obvious that European militaries are just in shambles because the the United States through NATO and through our nuclear umbrella has provided Security for Europe. That's that's the deal we've had with Europe, you know, um, since 
the end of the Cold War with all the European countries that joined NATO and the EU afterwards. And that's just the reality. So I think it's, it's one, it's U.S. leadership on this that's been really critical because once the U.S. decision was made, the allies eventually fall in line. And frankly, as somebody who was a uh, official in one of the European governments once told me is, you know, yes, everybody in Europe is very happy that we have an administration that's all multilateral and wants to use diplomacy. And it's a really nice, you know, breath of fresh air from the last administration, which was so uh, aggressive uh, towards European allies. But maybe we need um, the U.S. to be a bit of a jerk and bully us. That's what the U.S. does. And without that, nothing really gets done. So I think it's both things. And I think there's been debates within the administration that have come to light um, and a lot of public reporting on this uh, about disagreements between, you know, different parts of the executive office in the United States about what the policy should be. So, you know, all of this is just kind of been wrapped into what's been happening and the kind of incrementalism we've seen over the last year in providing assistance to Ukraine. All right. So let's go through the different actors here, because you actually have uh, an amazing degree of expertise with all of them, which is pretty rare. So we've, we've talked about the U.S. posture. Let's talk about the Ukrainian posture for a moment. They actually have a presidential election coming up. At the basic level of the functioning of that state, they seem to be at once being pummeled militarily, being successful militarily, and being successful at the level of a state in a way they've never been before. Uh, It reminds me of the old saying, war makes the state and the state makes war, or maybe the other way around. Talk about the impact of the last year on Ukraine as a as a state and as a functioning state. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a really fascinating question, actually, because where do I start? One, I mean, I think certainly the many years on the military side, on the defense side, the many years that the U.S. and NATO has invested, particularly the U.S., in the training of Ukrainian military has been paying off in this war. That's I think, is clear. That's been a good return on our investment. Um, and we didn't even do that much, you know, <laughs> uh, frankly speaking. So in terms of Ukraine's state's ability to defend itself, I think they get, you know, an A+, plus given what they've been working with and, and given who the adversary is. Um, in terms of Ukraine's, you could say institutions, let's say democratic institutions. Well, I mean, there's been no secret that Ukraine, you know, has struggled with issues of corruption for many years, just like many other countries, where even here in the United States, we're certainly not free of that. And that's certainly an issue that remains very prominent. But what I would say is that I think this war has pretty much destroyed any tolerance for corruption among the Ukrainian population. Because if you're found out to be, you know, siphoning funds from anything related to the war effort, and basically everything is related to the war effort at this point, 
you know, the Ukrainian public will not stand for this. And I think Zelensky and the people around him know this because there have been two revolutions in Ukraine against corrupt governments. And we saw a lot of dismissals just recently by the Ukrainian government of pretty high level administration officials there over allegations of, of corruption, which in the past would have been completely tolerated, not just by the government, by the Ukrainian people, I think, too, because the expectation was your government is corrupt. Now the expectation is you know, full transparency. And if anything is going the other way, you're going to be held accountable. So I think the war has actually helped move Ukraine much, much faster towards a more transparent democratic governance model. And I think that's been very positive. Okay, it remains to be seen what happens many years from now, but a lot will be determined by the outcome of the war. And I think it's obviously consolidated Ukrainian society politically in a way that we really haven't seen before. You know, Zelensky, before the war, was not the most unpopular Ukrainian president ever, obviously, but he was losing some popularity, which happens in a lot of countries where the incumbent comes in and you may have had a landslide election, but then very, very quickly, everybody hates you, you know, for all kinds of reasons. And that was happening in Ukraine. That's certainly not the case anymore because Zelensky has really become the embodiment of uh, Ukrainian courage and dedication and commitment to fighting for freedom. Um, and he's done this incredibly well. We all underestimated him, frankly. So, you know, I think Ukrainian society has moved in the right direction. But you know, I do think we have to be really wary in this, the broader West about just assuming that after the war, Ukraine will continue to to evolve towards democracy. I'm not saying it won't. And I think integration into the EU is a key part of ensuring Ukraine is resilient as a democratic state. But, you know, we have a lot of data from around the world where, and it's not necessarily in Europe, but around the world, it, countries that have a major military conflict in their borders don't often emerge from that as a democracy. So I think for that reason, now it's really the time to start investing People think this is, you know, I'm just going to say this, people think this is really kind of counterproductive to say we need to invest now in Ukraine's long-term resilience. Even as the war is going on, even as all this is happening, you know, we, security and resilience go hand in hand. Uh, because if we don't, and you know, the war ends, and hopefully Ukraine is the winner of that war and regains its territory, but there, if we haven't invested in ensuring that we have a vibrant Ukrainian civil society that we have Ukrainian judiciary that's independent, Ukrainian courts that are independent, all those elements that contribute to a vibrant democratic society, then I, I don't know where the country will go. Um, so I think now is the time to invest. And I think making this case is, is really the, the step for this year. All right, let's talk about Russia. So uh, Russia has had a disastrous year. On the other hand, it's huge. Uh, it has not been brought to its knees by a combination of military humiliation at the hands of, you know, the peasant nation next door and sanctions from the West. The regime seems stable-ish. 
how do you assess the impact of the last year on Russia as a state? Do you want the optimistic view or the cynical view? Yes. Both. <laughs> okay, well, the optimistic view from obviously our perspective in Ukraine and in the West, and then I'm going to break all of that with the with the cynical view. <laughs> the optimistic view is that exactly what you outlined. Like this was a strategic blunder by Putin and he, he completely and the Russian intelligence military completely misunderstood Ukraine. And now they have themselves embroiled in a war that they didn't even mean to start or, or to really even plan for. And now they have, by some estimates, 200,000 casualties, with a large proportion of those being killed in action. So that looks pretty bad. The Russian economy was in the toilet before. It's even deeper in the toilet now. Sanctions have had, I think, more limiting effect than we anticipated in some ways, because the Russians have navigated them in a quite sophisticated way. Plus, China and India are buying up Russian uh, oil and gas at a discount that's helping the Russians stay afloat. But the long-term trajectory certainly looks pretty depressing. Um, Russia's lost its best and brightest. Yeah, I mean, emigration is as big a deal as the casualties. Yes, brain drain is huge. It's a huge issue. So who's going to really be there to build Russia, invest in Russia? Unclear. So it all looks pretty bad and pretty dire. And Russia looks deeply diminished already. It looks like it's lost the war from that perspective. So that's one view that you could subscribe to. And now I'm going to give you the, the more cynical view or pessimistic view, if you will, which is that the Russian economy is projected to return to growth this year, despite all the sanctions, despite the oil cap that was so heatily negotiated by the Europeans. The state is now on a war footing in a way that we are not in the West. You know, we don't see this as our war. We see this as us supporting Ukraine in their war, right? But for Russia, they're at war, not with Ukraine. The Russian, you know, mouthpieces and state propaganda have been saying for a long time, they're the at West. war with the West. Correct. So they're on a war footing. Yes, it's Soviet era kind of stuff. They're not as sophisticated as they claim to be. But you know what? All that junk, if you have a lot of it, it works pretty well. You know, they have the infrastructure in place, left over from the Soviet era, to ramp up production. Are they facing some shortages and gaps in ammunition, just like Ukraine? Yes. But they're capable of producing their own. And we know that the Chinese and North Koreans and Iran have been helping them. So they're going to ramp up this war economy and you know, they don't care that two million people have left because who's left? Who's left is going to be the people who are completely dependent on the state. And as a result, will support the state because their livelihood is dependent on it. The other cynical point here is that we assumed in the West that Putin would face significant political pressure if Russian boys started coming back in body bags. He hasn't. And we have really under, underestimated, one, I think, the state's oppression and suppression and repression capabilities. But beyond that, the level of pain that the Russians are willing to accept, it is acceptable, unfortunately. It's unfathomable to us that, 
you know, we would have this significant loss in such a short time, and that would be acceptable to the to the public. It's acceptable to the Russian public. Right. I mean, this is twice the total casualties that the U.S. suffered in Vietnam over a decade, and that decade saw the war become unacceptable to the American public with half the the amount of casualties that that this war has produced in a single year. Yes, that's a I mean that's huge. Like if you wrap your head around that's huge. But you know what? The fact that Russians have experienced a decline in their standard of living, especially this year but also previously, benefits the regime. You know, we thought okay, there's a threshold of how much pain the Russian I don't think that threshold so far doesn't seem to exist, okay? Because Russians in their mindset is a lot to do with 20 years of brainwashing by the government of their own people. They still very vividly remember World War II and pain and suffering. And so death in combat as heroes of the nation is something that Russian people are actually willing to accept. Putin himself was a couple of uh, weeks ago said it out loud uh, where he met, I think, uh, it was the mother or the wife of a fallen soldier. And he said, your son died, if the son of the husband, I'm sorry, your son died as a hero of the nation. And he didn't die from alcoholism. Think about that. You know, that was something these people were proud of, that their, you know, son, husband, died as a hero, not an alcoholic, somewhere on the street. That is what we're talking about here. That level of deprivation, if you want to call it that, it actually helps the regime. The last depressing thing I'll say is in terms of the economy, you know, 90% of Western firms have not divested from Russia. There's a study that came out a few weeks ago from a European university that took stock of this. Yes, we heard about the high profile case, like McDonald's, you know, closing its doors, other large firms divesting. 90% have not. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that you know, industry, the private sector, think we're going to go back to business as usual because they're not pulling out of the Russian market and they see, still see revenues there despite Western sanctions, all of that. So that pessimistic picture of where Russia is heading, I mean, it's not towards growth, but the regime doesn't need growth. Right. It just needs non-collapse. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so when you take your optimistic versus your cynical, I, I know you vacillate between them depending on mood, but which which one is right? You know, I just, I think in my darkest moments when I uh, try to access, you know, my Slavic soul. Uh, unfortunately, I think the pessimistic view from what I know of Russian society and especially what I was saying about the Russian people outside of St. Petersburg and Moscow, as we're really talking about here, I feel like that is true. Yes, yes, things are bad. But as long as the war is somewhere over there and the regime has done a pretty good job of kind of maintaining things far away, nobody, nobody's going to care. You know, some people like uh, in Munich, uh, Mikhail Harakovsky was there talking about what do Russian people think. Um, and one of the things he said, and I've heard other Russian opposition leaders say this, is that we cannot believe the public opinion in Russia, the polls, which I agree with. But we cannot believe them because obviously manipulated and the real evidence, despite, you know, 80% support for Putin that we see in the polls, the real evidence that Russians don't support the war is that they're not running to volunteer. But I think this is a misunderstanding of yeah, Russia. Yeah, it could just mean they think it's somebody else's problem. Yeah, they just don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't, a Russian's objective in life is to have as little to do with the government and to attract as little attention from the government as possible. That's kind of the relationship between the Russian people and their government. Very different than those of us in the West. We have expectations of our governments, right? And that they're going to do certain things. No, it's like, just stay out of my life, stay out, and let me live my life. And I don't care how bad that life is as long as you don't bother me. That's pretty much how people relate to the government. So let's talk about Eastern Europe seems to me this is the group of countries that on a consistent basis, the Nordic countries, the Eastern European countries, the former Warsaw Pact countries have been the most consistently uh, where you want the alliance to be. I don't see any reason to imagine that will not continue over the next year uh, do you see any sign of slackening among the Eastern European countries that are not Serbia? <laughs> right. Before I get there, can I just say one thing on the optimistic versus pessimistic, cynical? Yeah, of course. Scenarios I've laid out here. I don't want to do a disservice to the optimistic view because I do think the situation in Russia is just far more cynical and nihilistic than we think. However, if Ukraine wins, things could change pretty profoundly in Russia itself because there has to be some reckoning in Russia about this. That's the only way that's going to happen if there's if there is a recognized defeat. Where the chances of that I think right now the chances there are not high. Not Ukraine winning, but the recognition of defeat by the regime, right? Right, there's a big difference between Russian failure and Ukrainian victory that Russia has to acknowledge. Exactly. 
I think the likelihood of the acknowledgement is very low. But if Ukraine wins, and let's say that means it regains its territorial integrity, and the Russians are forced to accept that, even if they try to sell it as some sort of win at home, whatever, I do think that will have some very positive repercussions, potentially for inside of Russia, but obviously for the for the West. Because we really need a win. We need a win after many, many mistakes in our foreign policy in the United States abroad, right? Iraq being one. And if we win together with Ukraine, you know, I really think this could be a real re-energizing and rebirth of a vision for the transatlantic alliance and democratic values and principles. That, that is possible, but we have to commit to it. So that's it. On Eastern Europe, I don't see any waffling from the Baltics or the Poles or the Nords or the UK, actually. I think what's been really interesting in watching European politics over the last year, there is a pretty profound realignment happening. And I've, I've been sort of calling it the crescent, right? Where we have the UK, the Nords, the Balts, and Central Eastern Europe, even going into Italy, despite uh, the right wing government there, the, the Italian PM was just in Kiev as well, and Spain. So the southern flank has actually been much more active and supportive than I would have expected um, from countries that generally don't see themselves as really involved or very much cared for, you know, Europe's east. And so what that means is that we're kind of seeing, you know, Germany and France, the two leaders of Europe, I think increasingly a little isolated because they're being surrounded by this crescent. You know, if anything, if they're, you know, I see a, a deep hardening happening, certainly among Eastern European allies, Central Eastern European allies against Russia. I mean, Poland Say what you will about Poland's domestic situation, fine. But Poland has clearly become, on defense and security, the indispensable partner and the voice of leadership and vision in Europe. Because they get it. Little Estonia, under Kaya Kalas, who's an amazing, amazing prime minister, has given everything they can, everything, to Ukraine. Right, the percent of GDP that has gone to Ukraine is astonishing. It's, I forget the exact numbers, but it's like, it's some, it's like the entire defense budget. I don't want to speak, speak out um, incorrectly, but it's astonishing. I mean, if we did something similar, people would be just in shock, you know, and first, and the war would be over because if we did that, the war would be over, you know, but it's amazing to watch. And because these countries get it, they've been there. They've been occupied by the Soviet state, by an imperial Russia. So is Putin right that Russia's at war with the entire West? I mean, you know, at some level, he's obviously wrong because he's fighting Ukrainian troops. But there is a sense in which, you know, the countries that Russia once occupied or dominated without occupying are very fierce at this point. And he is fighting a you know, I have a, I know a Ukrainian army person who has been training in the Czech Republic, 
you know, there does, there is a degree of coalition that is centered in these Eastern European countries along with the UK and the United States. But that is, if I were Putin, I, I might look at it and say, hey, I'm at war with the entire West. Well, first of all, the Russians have been saying this for like two decades. They based if you if you were uh, unfortunate enough to watch Russian television for the last twenty, yeah, I try to avoid that. Right, most of us do because it's it'll make you uh, feel like you live in some alternate alternate reality. But that is where a lot of Russians live, unfortunately. That rhetoric has been there for a very long time. You know that the West is out to get Russia. The West is against Russia. You know all this kind of stuff. Um, it's why you know we've seen a lot of some of these laws and like foreign agents undesirables over the last years, uh, even before 2014 and, and prior to that. So they need this to save face. They're saying it's a safe face because they're doing pretty crappily in Ukraine for supposedly the world's second most powerful military. Um, so if they say, well, look, we're fighting Ukrainians and we're losing, I mean, they can't say that. They have to save face. So they have to continue on this whole, you know, we're fighting the West, we're at war with NATO. How much of that is a reality? Well, look, I mean, certainly the West is not on a war footing like Russia is. The U.S. is not on a war footing. No, we haven't used it. Let's start up our factories in the war effort, right? Like we did in World War II. Oh, oh, oh. So you mean the uh, the Defense Production Act? Defense Production Act. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. We haven't done that. Europeans are not in a war mindset. So no, I don't think we are. I don't think the West is at war with Russia. I think the West is significantly helping Ukraine. And I think we see Ukraine as fighting the war for the West that we're just not fully willing to engage in. Again, I do think if we engaged in the war in a significant way and saw this as our war that the Ukrainians are fighting for us, not just a war somewhere over there, I think this thing would be done because the entire capabilities of the Western alliance are significant. And that's not what the Ukrainians are working with right now, obviously. All right. So before we get back to us, let's talk about the problem children in 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 Berlin and Paris, why has it been as hard as it has been to bring the leaders of Europe along with what their Eastern flank so passionately wants? That is a very good question for which we need to think probably several hours. But you know, I'll speak a little bit on Germany because Germany is, is really the, uh, the crux of the matter here. Uh, Germany is the largest economy in Europe. It's also been the country that, you know, has been the so-called reluctant, the reluctant leader, um, never wanting to be seen as the leader of Europe in many ways, despite desires, even from the polls, right, for Germany to lead. You know, I think there was a moment when Schultz made his Zeitenwende speech that we thought, finally, we've all been waiting for this, like for Germany to take up the mantle of leadership and vision for Europe. And then as it often happens, you know, internal deliberations and calibrations and debates and interests lead to a slightly different outcome. Again, not to undermine it, there have been many sacred cows 
of German defense and security policy that have been murdered in the last year. One is nuclear. You know, when Merkel made her decision to shut down all nuclear power plants, that's being rethought. Another one is obviously defense and security. You know, the fact that Schultz made the decision finally after wrangling and a huge amount of pressure from everyone to authorize the leopards is huge because something about that imagery, you know, of German tanks in Ukraine, it brings up the dark history of World War II in people's minds. Context, completely different, but something about that image. It's really... And particularly sending them across Poland to get there. Exactly. Even though the Poles want that, right? I mean, it's right. completely different. I saw, I saw a German early in the war. I, I saw a German uh, tweet that basically said, so let me get this straight. Poles want Germans to send weapons across Poland to invade Ukraine. And, I, you know, but there, I, look, there does seem to be this tone in Germany where they were like, yeah, we said Zeitenwende. We didn't, we didn't mean that kind of Zeitenwende, right? I mean, there does seem to be like they've gone a long way, but they don't follow the extension of their own logic. Right. That's right. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons why German society was not prepared for this. But what's been interesting is that I surprised to me as someone who's lived in Germany has spent a lot of time in that country and has spent many years learning the language. You know, I was actually surprised how in many ways public opinion was ahead of the policy in Germany. We saw this over and over again, that German society and the German people, poll after poll, actually willing to take on some significant pain to cut themselves off the dependence on Russian gas uh, to support Ukraine, you know, but I think, unfortunately, we're not quite there. Germany hasn't quite done what we hoped it would do, but it's not all bad either. You know, they have made some significant things, significant steps. They invested $100 billion into their defense, long overdue, long overdue, but finally we're getting there. You know, they've cut themselves off Russian gas. No one thought they could do this. They built these LNG terminals and like some crazy, unbelievably short amount of time that nobody thought was possible. Um, so German efficiency, you know, uh, I work here. Um, I think the French are a slightly different category. You know, um, I think Macron has said over and over again, even recently, that Russia has to be part of Europe's security architecture. No one knows what this means, especially now. And so there's always been this desire in the French political class you know, to see themselves as, you know, the the negotiator, the the country that understands Russia, that understands its concerns, that's still there. And I think uh, for better or for worse, I actually think Macron is the best that we're going to get in France. Because if you look at the opposition, it's all, you know, right. the far they're, right. They're funded by Putin. Correct. They're literally, right? Literally, yeah. Well, literally, yes. So, you know, I think that, in a very short way of saying, you know, there's historical reasons in Germany why it's taking so long, and if, and especially in Schultz's own party, the SPD. The Greens, the foreign minister, uh, Baerbach, is from the Green Junior Coalition member. 
have been visionary on this and have pushed the agenda. So I think eventually, you know, Schultz was forced to take action, but it took a lot of deliberation, a lot of pressure from many, many different sides. So is it a satisfying answer? No, because in a time of war, we need action and we need now, you know, we can't wait for months of deliberation. But are we are we getting to the right steps? Yes, but it's far too slowly. Yeah, so that brings us back to the Biden administration on our world tour of a year at war with Ukraine. And you've described, I think, both the opportunities and the constraints in delivering the alliance. And so I'm interested in your assessment in light of all of that, of how the Biden administration has done. I mean, on the one hand, we're in it for as long as it takes. Biden's in Kyiv um, or was in Kyiv earlier this week. Uh, Zelensky comes to Washington. The Ukrainians have uh, some significant portion of the weapons that they need. On the other hand, they don't have all the weapons that they need and they take longer to get there than uh, anybody would like. Uh, if you had to uh, evaluate the administration's performance and for that matter, Congress's performance, how should we think about US performance over the last year? Well, look, we're doing some really significant things, right? I mean, not only, a lot of focus has been the weapon systems, but we're also providing direct budgetary support to Ukraine. Like we're literally transferring $1.5 billion to Ukraine <laughs> so that it, it doesn't collapse as, as an economy. I mean, that's huge, right? The fact that the Congress is authorized in our budget and through other mechanisms, you know, $50 billion plus in support is huge. The fact that we're just transferring weapons to Ukraine at the speed that we are is also huge. Again, we can't not to belittle what we've done. It's been significant, but it's still not enough is the problem. So I think that's where the crux of the problem is, um, that I think we're doing a lot, but it's still too slow. And if you ask anyone at the Pentagon, you know, what is going on delays? They're going to tell you, we're doing this as fast as we can and faster than we ever done it before, right? And we're taking on some significant risks potentially, because when you do things fast, you have to, you know, cut some red tape, which is there to try to mitigate risk, right? And we're sending all the stuff into Ukraine that we wouldn't have, that we don't even give to some of our closest allies, you know, and we're just sending it over there. And probably doing other things that we're just not aware of in the public domain and should not know about. But, you know, I think what the problem has been is that, again, there's been a lot of reporting, which I think is factual, about the internal debates in the administration. You know, and I think there is is the problem. I think the president gets it. And I think his trip to Kiev was ex absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. The fact that U.S. president went to a war zone, not under anyone's, not under the control of the U.S. government or military, is amazing. That they, it was a huge risk, huge. And it just that 
image. Zelensky and Biden standing there with the air sirens going off was amazing. But that to me, when I see that image, I think, okay, we're in it to win, but we're not giving the Ukrainians what they need to win. And this is where the, the disconnect is for me. So if you could change, I mean, your, your, your big message over the past uh, 52 minutes has been that the alliance as a whole needs to set Ukrainian victory as an objective and treat that as a short-term objective rather than a uh, rather than preventing defeat as a long-term objective how does the operational policy look different uh if everybody at munich had said we're in it for as long as it takes to achieve victory as quickly as possible if that had been the message and there's some shorter version of that how would policy look different in the united states it would probably mean even more funding which congress by the way seems very eager to approve <laughs> even more funding for Ukraine. That's what we heard from members of Congress all over Munich, both sides of the aisle, leaders, you know, like I said, Pelosi, McConnell, McCall, all speaking in one voice. I was shocked by this, frankly, because how often do we really get that? It would also mean stopping all of these debates about we're going to send X, we're not going to send X, you know, we're going to send Y, we're not going to send Y. Okay. Send them what they're asking for. Send them the... All weapons are offensive. All weapons are defensive. Send them what they need. You know, the Ukrainians want to control the airspace. Duh. <laughs> give them what they need. They want patriots. If we have them, give it to them. You know, um, accelerate. I'm sorry to be so boring. Our acquisition and procurement process and our FMS process. Okay. Like this has... <laughs> like I've heard more about this. In, the, in Munich than like so many other things, right? This bu the bureaucracy, right? We can cut through a lot of it and we have, and we can do even more and start like really cramming it to our European partners, you know, who are not following suit and shaming them into it because that's what the UK did to us. If we remember in the early days of the war, Boris Johnson, prime minister said, our policy is victory. And it was the UK that started sending more advanced weapons systems. And that forced Washington to do the same. I really think it did. But we need to play that role in the alliance. Look, and the UK's now said they're probably going to be training pilots, even though we haven't made a decision on fighter jets. Send the fighter jets. You know, can we just stop? It's stopping this deliberation, this back and forth, and this is escalatory, this is not. Because we know, we know that the only thing the Russians respond to is force. This is the unfortunate reality of Russian policy. And you talk to any Russian politician, opposition politician, who's been in there, who knows Putin, they all say the same thing. The only way the Russians will know you're serious and the only way they'll end the war is by military defeat. There's nothing else. There's no diplomacy to be had here. It is just a show of strength and a show of force. And I think we understand that, but that's how the policy will look differently. I want to ask one additional question before I let you go. 
the Secretary General of the United Nations yesterday said that war is not the solution, war is the problem, and that there has to be peace, and it has to be in accordance with the uh, UN Charter and with international law. And I found this infuriating because it, it seemed to equate defensive war with offensive war. And to the extent that you want to vindicate the principles of the UN Charter, uh, i.e. the territorial integrity of states and the, the non-acquisition of territory by force, uh, the only way to do that is for Ukraine to prevail militarily. And so I guess my question is, is there anything to be said for the camp on both the left and the right that is arguing for a negotiated settlement at this point? Is there any basis for talks? And should I be giving Secretary General Guterres any more time of my emotional and intellectual energy than I am? Look, I mean... The UN, I wouldn't say it's proven to be completely unimportant, but obviously as long as Russia is on the Security Council, it's kind of a joke at this point um, as to the UN's ability to really do much because you have the aggressor sitting there in the room and you can't do anything about it. And that's it. Yes, it's good that we have votes, that uh, we see... You know, support for Ukraine, although it's definitely not universal, and definitely there are countries, especially in Africa and the broader global south, that are not on board with the Western vision. That's a real freaking problem, frankly. But, and your specific question, right now, there is no room for negotiations because the Russians are doubling down. They are in the middle of a renewed offensive. There will likely be another conscription, mobilization of more Russian soldiers. They're not showing any signs that they're willing to even back down or even willing to come to the table. And, you know, the Ukrainians have been putting ideas out there as a starting point for negotiation, despite the fact that the Russians are killing their people and destroying their country. And I think we don't recognize that enough. You know, in a war environment where you have a country being attacked, completely unprovoked, being victimized by a huge aggressor state, for that country to still say, we're going to come to the negotiating table, here's some ideas. You may not like them, but here they are. That's pretty significant. But the moment for any sort of negotiation hasn't happened. You know, I often hear from the proponents of some sort of settlement that all wars end in a settlement. Okay, first of all, usually a lot of wars, not all, but a lot of wars end with a defeat followed by a settlement on the basis of that defeat from one side. So yes, factually, there's often wars do end with an agreement, right, of some sort of settlement. But that is not, that doesn't come before some sort of clear winner or loser in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases. And we're not anywhere near there. So I think this is what I would say to those who are advocating for some sort of settlement. Where do you see the space for a negotiation with the Russian side that will be sincere and genuine? I see no signs. 
why do we keep talking about some off-ramp for Putin when he's never asked for an off-ramp or suggested that he even wants one? And why do we keep thinking it's our responsibility to provide an off-ramp to an aggressor without any signs that that's what they actually want? Think if if the Russians came to us and said, look, we need an off-ramp because this is kind of killing our economy. Fine. Okay, let's talk. I think that's legitimate. But that's not that's not where we are right now. And I think, unfortunately, that's not going to be the case for quite some time. We are going to leave it there. Alina Polyakova, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and today it's produced in cooperation with the Center for European Policy Analysis. You, the listener, have a role to play here. You need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast, and that means sending tweets about this episode, tag Alina when you do, sharing it on Facebook, TikTok videos, I want Twitch conversations about the Lawfare podcast, and for heaven's sake, become a material supporter of Lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.